The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Come Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to the weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. Guy Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who knows every single move of Michael Jackson's solo dance, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we will continue to cover the new series of Doctor Who with an in-depth discussion on the season 8, episode 11, penultimate episode entitled Dark Water, and an episode of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Legend of Korra and Star Wars Rebels, along with our sitcom section including Big Bang Theory and Modern Family, but no new girl once again because of the World Series. And as always, we will also bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section. Yeah, before we get into all that, I know it's after the fact, but this is a Halloween-themed episode to come across the airways because Halloween episodes aired this week during the week of reviews that we do. So that's why this is a Halloween episode after the fact. So without further ado, let's get into everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. <laughs> Doctor Who season finale to be special extended episode. Next week's finale, Death in Heaven, will be written by Stephen Moffat and will run for 60 minutes. The BBC has confirmed that the climax of the current season of Doctor Who will be a special extended episode running to 60 minutes. Due to air in the UK on November 8th, the finale, Death in Heaven, is the second part of Saturday's episode, Dark Water, with both being written by showrunner Stephen Moffat and directed by Rachel Talalay. The BBC teased a synopsis for the coming finale, and the details are sure to get Whovians the world over excited. Quote, with Cybermen on the streets of London, old friends unite against old enemies and and the Doctor takes to the air in a startling new role. Can the mighty unit contain Missy? As the Doctor faces his greatest challenge, sacrifices must be made before the day is won. Look for our review of this week's Dark Waters coming after the News with Nico section, and look for a special extended finale episode next Saturday on BBC America in the U.S. Marvel Studios announces full Phase 3 slate of films. The Marvel Cinematic Universe will grow even bigger than ever before with Phase 3. At a special event held at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, Marvel Studios President Kevin Feige took to the stage to announce the full slate for Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, featuring a mix of fan-favorite characters along with a number of heroes set to make their big screen debut in the coming years. And while the confirmation of upcoming sequels to the successful Captain America, Thor, Avengers, and Guardians of the Galaxy franchises would have been enough to send fans into a frenzy of excitement, Kevin Feige also surprised with the first details on upcoming films starring Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, and the Inhumans. You can catch all the coverage of the events by following the links in the ACC feed, but the headlines include Marvel pits Captain America and Iron Man in a cinematic civil war, Marvel's Doctor Strange conjures up a November 2016 release date, the Guardians of the Galaxy to return sooner than expected, Thor brings Ragnarok to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in 2017, Chadwick Boseman to star in Marvel's Black Panther, Captain Marvel soars into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel's Inhumans to populate the big screen in 2018, 18, and Marvel's the Avengers heads into an Infinity War. That's all for now, but keep your eyes peeled to Marvel.com for the latest on Marvel Studios and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it breaks. 
Marvel will cap off Phase 3 with two-part Avengers Infinity War. This is what we've been waiting for. The culmination of nearly 20 films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to be a two-part theatrical event over the course of 2018 and 2019 that will bring together nearly every corner of the Marvel Universe, including Thanos and the Infinity Stones. In short, this is going to be gigantic. So gigantic that Marvel had to break precedent and split the film into two parts. This is Avengers Infinity War. That we'll see an adaptation of Marvel's Infinity Gauntlet was a foregone conclusion the moment we got our first glimpse of Thanos' craggly purple face at the end of 2012's Avengers. As Kevin Feige remarked during this week's events, we've always had a plan since Nick Fury broke into Tony Stark's house and told him he's part of a bigger universe. Avengers Infinity War Part 1 is the beginning of the culmination of everything that has come before. The fact that it's being broken into two films, though, comes as something of a shock. It had been rumored that the film would be split into two parts earlier this year, but the nature of Marvel's complex multi-film contracts seemed to indicate that such an arrangement would be impossible. Evidently, nothing is impossible for the House of Ideas big screen machine. That being said, there's still plenty of groundwork that needs to be laid. As of now, we have only seen three of the six Infinity Stones in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Power Stone in Guardians of the Galaxy, the Reality Stone, the Aether in Thor the Dark World, and the Space Stone or the Tesseract in Avengers, which leaves three to be uncovered. Note, some people posit that we've seen four, example, the Mind Stone in the form of Loki's staff, but that has not been confirmed officially, but I think it seems likely that that will be the case. Granted, there are seven movies between now and Avengers Infinity War Part 1, so there's plenty of time between now and then for our heroes to uncover all manners of cosmic reality altering artifacts. For more information on all of this, follow the link in the ACC feed now. New Harry Potter Hotel brings Hogwarts to London. As authentic and true as to the world of J.K. Rowling as the wizarding world of Harry Potter at Universal Studios in Orlando may be, let's face it, it's still built on a hot, humid slice of Floridian land. More to the point, it's also American land, and if you really want the truest Hogwarts experience that money can buy, it makes perfect sense that you've got to go to the UK. In an effort to celebrate Pottermania, the 163-year-old Georgian House Hotel near London's Victorian Station has now started to include replica Hogwarts rooms as well as personalized, quote, wizarding packages, which include a tour of the major landmarks of the Harry Potter film series as well as a trip to the Warner Brothers studios for the making of Harry Potter tour. Special guest rooms will include trunks, potion bottles, cauldrons, and spell books, so you can pretend to be part of the house of your choice, Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, or Ravenclaw. Of course, this journey into the magical realm for regular old muggles likely will come at quite a hefty price tag. Prices start at £249 per night in some of the smaller wizard chambers, which houses three people, but it can go as high as £363 a night for the five-person room. For more information or to book your room now, follow the link in the ACC feed now. Benedict Cumberbatch reportedly cast as Doctor Strange. Sherlock and Star Trek Into Darkness star Benedict Cumberbatch is reportedly in, quote, final negotiations to play Doctor Strange for Marvel Studios. The news comes by a deadline. Doctor Strange was recently name-dropped in, in Captain America The Winter Soldier, and the British actor was first reported to be on Marvel's wish list some months ago, but then Joaquin Phoenix was approached for the role. Ultimately, Phoenix wouldn't commit to a multi-film contract, and there's no deal yet in place for Cumberbatch, and his commitment to Doctor Strange is contingent on juggling his schedule filming the fourth season of Sherlock. The BBC series previously accommodated Sherlock's Dr. Watson, played by Martin Freeman, so he could film the Hobbit trilogy. Scott Dickerson from Sinister will direct from a script written by John Spates from Prometheus. Game of Thrones casts re-ups for 7th Impossible Final Season. The night may be dark and full of terrors, but a future in which Game of Thrones goes on without your favorites isn't one of them. HBO has locked down all of the series' principal actors, including Peter Dinklage, Nicholas, Nikolai Koster-Wadu, and Lena Haiti, for a potential 7th season. Game of Thrones' main actors had been signed through 6 seasons for this sweeping fantasy drama previously. The recent negotiation provides an option for the 7th season, which has not yet been greenlit, but is all but certain. Season 7 also is likely to be the drama Swan Song, as producers David Benenoff and D.B. Weiss frequently 
Movies have said that they would like to wrap the saga up after its seventh installment. In April, Game of Thrones was renewed for seasons five and six, and the cast reportedly received large raises to re-up for the additional run of episodes. In addition to Dinklage, Custer Wadu, and Lena Headey, the cast members who will be around for season seven, provided their characters actually survive season five and six, which is never a given on this show, include Kit Harrington, Amelia Clark, Natalie Dormer, Sophie Turner, and Maisie Williams. NPH to host his own NBC variety show. Neil Patrick Harris and NBC are finalizing a deal for the How I Met Your Mother star to host his own variety show on NBC. The series, which consists of 10-hour-long episodes, will be an American adaptation of Ant and Dex Saturday Night Takeaway, a UK variety program produced by ITV. NBC on Monday announced that the show will include comedy sketches, musical numbers, mini-game shows, hidden camera pranks on celebrities, and appearances by A-list stars. The Peacock Network has ordered 10 episodes from ITV Studios America, all of which will be filmed in front of a live audience in New York. Title and premiere date are yet to be determined. For years, NPH has spoken freely about wanting to do an Ed Sullivan-style broadcast on a major network. He told Howard Stern in May that he and CBS chief Les Munoz had discussed the possibility of such a show. The format is a natural fit for NPH, who has a background in musicals and live theater, and I will definitely tune in because I love NPH. Can't wait, and I'll keep you informed of when it will premiere when all those inf- all that information is released. Taylor Kitsch confirmed for True Detective Season 2 role. While HBO is yet to confirm the news, Taylor Kitsch from Friday Night Lights, Lone Survivor, and The Normal Heart has gone on record as saying he is in the second season of True Detective. The actor, who was rumored last July to be one of the actors being considered for a Season 2 role, confirmed his involvement with the series to Adweek.com by a head nod and then spoke about taking the last year off so he would be available. Kitsch's role is that of Paul Woodruff, a handsome 28-year-old military veteran who has seen his own share of violence and destruction. Kitsch is joining Colin Farrell, Vince Vaughn, and possibly Rachel McAdams, should she and HBO ever decide to actually confirm her involvement. I can't wait for this series to return in 2015. Meet CBS's Supergirl and her sister as casting begins. Casting is now underway, courtesy of the same folks who populated Arrow and The Flash for CBS's Supergirl series, and TV Line has the details on exactly what and who the DC Comics-based drama is looking for in two of its lead roles. For Kara Zor-El, aka Kara Danvers, the show is eyeing Caucasian females aged 22 to 26 to play 24. As the series mythology goes, Kara at age 12 was sent from her dying home planet of Krypton to Earth, where she was taken in by the Danvers, a foster family who taught her to be careful with her extraordinary powers. After repressing said skill for more than a decade, Kara is forced to bust out her super moves in public during an unexpected disaster. Energized by her heroism for the first time in her life, she begins embracing her abilities in the name of and helping the people of her city, earning herself a super moniker along the way. The other lead character being cast is the 26-year-old Alexandra Alex Danvers, Kara's gorgeous, brilliant, science-minded foster sister. Growing up, Alex was partly jealous of her sibling, yet also fascinated by her abilities, prompting Alex to learn as much as she could about the alien anthropology, sociology, and culture. Today, Alex works for a secret government organization and alongside her heroic sister, will face many challenges both mundane and super. The Supergirl pilot was penned by Ali Adler from No Ordinary Family and Greg Berlanti from Arrow, both of whom will executive produce alongside Sarah Schechner of Berlanti Productions and Warner Brothers TV. The Flash casts a Vampire Diaries alum to play Linda Park. Malise Zhao, who appeared on the Vampire Diaries as a fan favorite Anna and starred on last season's One and Done Starcross, has joined the cast of The Flash. The actress will recur as DC Comics character Linda Park, a reporter for the Central City Picture News who befriends Candace Patton's Iris. And when she meets Barry, sparks fly. In the comics, Parks is the girlfriend and eventual wife of Wally West, the third Flash in the history of the character, and the first Kid Flash. Look for Zhao's first appearance on the show in episode 12. 
CBS's Supergirl casting Jimmy Olsen, Cat Grant, and others. On the heels of sharing details about the casting for Supergirl's, Supergirl's title role and her foster sister, TV Line has now the scoop on four other series regular roles to be filled on the drama, which already has a serious commitment from CBS. Cat Grant, the project is eyeing females in their 40s, open ethnicity to play the founder of CatCo, a media conglomerate that Cat built from the ground up. Kara, Supergirl's mild-mannered alter ego, will work as the personal assistant to Cat. James Olsen, in his late 20s, early 30s, open ethnicity, James is a smart, worldly, and attractive photographer for Catco. Though an alpha male, his salt-of-the-earth nature elicits a huge old crush from Kara. Winslow Wynn Shot, this 20-something tech whiz, Comic-Con stalwart, toils for Catco as a programmer, unaware of his own potential. Unaware of her secret, he carries a torch for Kara, who he lives next door to. And finally, Hank Henshaw, an upstart CIA agent, Hank grew obsessed with the intergalactic intel. Now in his 40s and lording over the DEO, Department of Extranormal Operations, he is on high alert when Supergirl reveals herself, wor worried that her otherworldly abilities pose a threat to humankind. This series seems to be picking up steam and I hope we soon will have actual casting news for these roles revealed here and the title role as well. Finally, Paul Rubens confirms new Pee Wee Herman movie coming. And suddenly Paul Rubens is everywhere again. He's been popping up on the blacklist. Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse finally has its Blu-ray release. And now there's a new Pee Wee Herman project in the works. It's true. He confirmed it himself. While speaking with Rolling Stone, Mr. Rubens said that we should hear something any minute now. He elaborated a little, but only a little. Quote, I'm thinking there will be something made public very soon. It's going to get made shortly after the new year. I wish I could tell you about it right now because, I mean, it's just amazing. It's going to be amazing. Speaking to Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show, Mr. Rubens lets slip that Judd Apatow will produce the new film. He's still not talking about who the director is, but promises that an announcement is only a week away. For more information, follow the link in the ACC feed. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, with that, we're going to kick things off this week with our discussion of the penultimate episode of season eight of Doctor Who with the episode entitled Dark Water. The Doctor is faced with an impossible decision because plans are drawn in the mysterious world of the Nether Sphere. Wow. Just wow. This week's episode of Doctor Who, entitled Dark Water, written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Rachel Talele, packed in more drama and surprises than the last several episodes all combined. It also just happens to be my favorite episode of the entire Peter Capaldi era so far, and it was only a setup slash first half episode to next week's finale, which I already predict will be my new favorite episode of the season when it airs next week. This episode had Clara declare her undying love to Danny Pink and then in a brilliantly acted scene we hear Danny killed while on the phone with Clara. We saw Clara betray the doctor and destroy the TARDIS keys in one of the best and intensest scenes the show's ever produced. Clara's anger and grief shines through in that scene and Jenna Louise Coleman gives one of her very finest performances and that's saying something with all the things that she's done in this series. Yeah. Essentially it was a Mexican standoff without weapons only to be revealed that it was in fact a switcheroo with the sleep patches. Ultimately, though, Clara didn't destroy the TARDIS keys, but she would have, and that's how the Doctor knows she was serious, or rather, how serious she was. He tricked her, of course, and her betrayal of him seems to even th everything out. But I loved when the Doctor asked her if she thought he cared so little for her that her betrayal would make a difference and prevent him from helping her in her time of need. That is the Doctor we love shining through, and it warmed my heart after so many times this season not seeming to be that Doctor that I love. We also saw dead Danny in the afterlife or as they called it in this episode, the Nether Sphere, which was pretty awesome. And we got a flashback to the moment he stopped wanting to be a soldier when he killed that young boy. A man called Dr. Chang tells the doctor and Clara that the awful truth, which is that 
Apparently, people's minds still feel everything even after their body is dead. That's why the three words nobody should hear are so chilling. Don't cremate me. White noise won't be so normal or soothing for me anymore after this episode. We also saw skeletons sitting in the magic elixir they call dark water, but they are apparently not totally dead. Their bodies, Missy says, are getting upgraded while their minds have been uploaded. That should have been our first indication that something was not right, which only later did we understand its full meaning when the not-so-dead bodies were revealed as Cybermen. That was amazing and would have been the best reveal of the episode if the final reveal that we had been waiting for all season since the premiere episode of just who Missy was and how she related to the Doctor had not happened right before fading to black in this episode in a move nobody saw coming. And I mean nobody because I scoured the internet for the last few weeks looking at all the different theories going around and no one, not even the geniuses over at Nerdist.com who I know Chris Hardwick at least have inside information on the show called Missy as the Master. I know! The Master! How free Cool is that? Damn, I was close. I was close. Yeah, close. This episode was everything that I wanted this season to be. So, what was your impression of this week's episode? It was very well done. I was kind of shocked a little bit by how dark and morbid it was. Agreed, agreed. Especially in those first five minutes. You and I can handle that stuff, but I was like, oh my god, this might be a little over the kid that got this time. Because I know a lot of people kind of look at this as a family show where they sit and watch this with their kids. God, the topic of death is a little much. And, and there were parts of this that creeped me out. The don't cremate me thing. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> that was some scary stuff, and how they kind of threw in the little trick that was developed. I think Michael Keaton was in the movie. The white noise. Yeah. That was that was freaky stuff, too. You know, and, and again, when I die, I don't want to become a Cyberman. No. <laughs> so that was kind of scary, too. You know, I just wanted to get this straight on the Cyberman thing, because I was so shocked, shocked by the twist at the end. That basically, what they're doing is they're taking dead bodies, turning them into Cyberman. Yes. Okay, I- and then uh, Persian's Contest gives it that heaven or wherever That nether sphere, which is a... Yes. Which is a Time Lord device that captures the consciousness of humans and is able to store them. So when they die, it grabs their soul or their consciousness or whatever you want to call it in this case, and it uploads it to their hard drive and keeps it there rather than allowing it to go on to wherever it believes. So you basically, know, you believe. the doctor's objective is to stop or destroy that thing so people's souls could go to essentially heaven or wherever. Yeah, to to their understanding of heaven. Yeah, because essentially we didn't really get because it, it always started out like the TARDIS going to go where it's never gone before, which is essentially heaven or hell or wherever you're going to go. Right. And again, this never kind of screwed it up. So I wonder, are we ever going to get to see the, the doctor go to heaven or a place like that, like in a what dreams may come capacity? I'm... Or is it going to be just like, they're going to just leave that kind of up to your speculation because that's kind of how it is in the real world. You know, I, I don't think they, they are going to go there. I think it's it's sort of one of the time-locked locked locations that no one, no one can go to, even the doctor, until it's his time. So I, I just don't think... He even said, you know, I've always wanted to go, but never gone before. And so he took off all the safety checks and all of that. But still, even then, the TARDIS would not go there. It, it went to St. Peter's Cathedral or St. John's Cathedral. I, I don't remember which one it is. But it's very important with the Cybermen in, in the original series with the first yeah. eight Doctors. It was a very important location for Cybermen from that series. So this is actually a, a callback to the original series as well. So that'll be interesting for next season. Which was, yeah, excellent, excellent callback there. Yeah, it's seen with Clara and the Keys, that was almost like Kirk betrayed Spock kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it really was just, whoa. 
That's one of the best scenes we've ever seen on this series, but definitely of Peter Capaldi's era. Well, has that happened before? That the companion betrayed the Doctor? Um, I don't want to say no, because I haven't seen everything from the original series. But from what we've seen. But from this thing, not to that level, never to yeah. where it was intending to... Carb the Doctor. Harm the Doctor or prevent the Doctor from ever doing his what he does. I think this is the yeah. first time it's ever been that. That was so well done, so well done. But I love that he was on top of it the whole time. <laughs> yes. Because when that last key went, I'm like, okay, there's got to be something here. Yep. He, he's got something going for Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. Crazy. But, but the master, Dan, you had speculated that you thought it was death or someone who had hijacked death. You got that part right for sure. Yes. And in a sense, the master had done just that by stealing the consciousness of those recently dead, storing them in a Time Lord super hard drive, and then downloading them into Cybermen. Looking back on knowing what we know now, the master certainly should have been one of the main speculations as to Missy's true identity. Her being the master, to me explains why she's so evil why she knows the doctor so well calling him her boyfriend and why her plans seem so insane that it just might work the mistress as she can't rightly be called the master right now is the doctor's greatest foe and we now have on-screen evidence that time lords and ladies can change sex during regeneration surely this will lead many to say that the doctor needs to be a woman in the future right it would it would have to at least open that up as a possibility i think of all the possible outcomes of what missy actually is though perhaps the most predictable in hindsight, her being the master makes the most sense. The fact that she's raising an army of undead Cybermen is still a big question mark, but one I imagine we'll get the full answer to in next week's season finale. So Dan, what does Missy being the master mean to you, and do you see there being a huge outcry for a female doctor the next time he regenerates? Yeah, that's a big thing. That would really change the dynamic of the show if there's a female doctor. I don't know, do we need an explanation as to how a time word could change gender, or do we just say it's all dead? I think everybody had pretty much speculated that there was no reason that the Time Lords could not change sex when they when they regenerated. They change appearance so much and personality so much that there was no reason that they couldn't also change sex. That was not ever a, yeah. a hard and fast rule. This makes it seem like it's now an open rule that, that they can, in fact, do that. But maybe we'll have to have an explanation of how Missy changed. And maybe it was something special. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's something that happens. It just doesn't happen all that often. It'll be something that we will they'll have to explain to an extent so that they can set it up if that is where they want to go next time with a new doctor well the, the crush makes sense to me get all of that oh yeah because the uh, master has always been obsessed with the doctor right and well and when john Stiff played the master the last time we saw him he kind of had a kind of somewhat homosexual or bisexual tendencies a little bit i mean i, I just picked up on it so this, this guy didn't feel like this was too outside of the wheelhouse the only thing i'm a little disappointed in because maybe this is the perfect thing on my part because we did get to see master take on the master because the doctor because the only thing I'm a little disappointed in, because I would have liked to see that. Like, that's just wishful thinking on my part. Yeah. So like, yeah, awesome, great twist. I really like it. It's a great way for Quick Capaldi's story to go. Could he get us excited about him? But at the same time, like, oh man, it would have been awesome. If it was bad. But again, I think the master would have to be completely different if it was bad. I don't know if the woman thing would work with that. Get some of that stuff. Yeah, I don't think it would. Because the it, death it, thing is way too morbid for that. Yeah, that exactly. This this is a very much Peter Capaldi style story with this way and how it's going, and him being so devoid of not devoid of feeling but not knowing how to deal with feelings and not really understanding so that when she kisses him, he's completely flabbergasted. He has no idea how to deal with that. When he feels the two hearts in her chest, it completely throws him so much that he can't process exactly what it was. He should have known it instantly. Time Lord, two hearts. But he didn't. It just threw him so much off his game that he didn't put two and two together until it was too late. Yeah, yeah. well, the fact that the Master was coming to him as a woman, too. Exactly. was a new thing. He had seen that for him. Right. I mean, it's possible 
invisible, but I mean, he's been away for so long, you know, it, it kind of threw him off. Plus, there's a lot of people that's kind of mad at him or have been left to die by the doctor. Yeah. So it's like, oh, which person are you? Right, exactly. I mean, exactly. Like you said, the master was left to die, and pretty much everybody thought that he would die this time. But You know, the, the big thing about that storyline is it was so overshadowed by everything with Donna's grandfather and the tenant leaving uh-huh. that I almost kind of forgot what happened to the master at the, at the end of that episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do, you, I mean, do you remember? Uh, no, I don't have a, a distinct memory of where, where he was, how he was left, where he went, what happened to him. None of that is clear in my mind. I just remember the rest of that story. Like, yep. and, 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 and even that with time is fading a little bit. I'd have to go back and watch it again. And maybe I should. <laughs> Quite it, it, I don't really know if they really need to recap it now because it's been so long. But I, I mean, I think that the, the substance of the master, Cuddy's back, is enough to go, okay, of course she's back now. Yeah. Is enough to go, okay, this is not good. I mean, it's like it's like when the supervillain comes back in the comic books. You know, the Joker comes back, it's like, oh yeah, I knew he'd be back. The yeah. master kind of has that type of image. Now, the water in the tanks is x-ray water, or dark water, which only allows people to see the organic matter of a person. They're all skeletons, but that doesn't mean there isn't any synthetic material in the water. When the doctor enters an elevator and the doors close, we finally see what the plan is. The 3W logo looks just like a cyber eye. Missy begins draining the tanks, and yep, every single person in a tank has been turned into a Cyberman. Thus, it was revealed that the monster this week were the Cybermen. But in reality, this was more of a setup episode, so they were not really in the episode until the very last scenes. I'm sure we will get plenty of Cybermen next week, because what's the Earth got in abundance? Dead people. Oh, that is not good at all for the Doctor and Clara. And all those dead... Dead with Cybermen. (laughs) It's going to be the Walking Dead with Cybermen. (laughs) And all those dead people's consciousness are just in a little floating orb in 3W. It seems that the afterlife is alive. Well, as long as the Master is hijacking death, that is. This episode was the exact kind of shocking and rule-breaking episode I was hoping it would be. Things were revealed, though not everything, which is perfect for a cliffhanger slash setup for the finale episode. Moffat's script was tight and plot-driven, and Talalay's direction gave the episode, which in actuality is mostly just people talking in rooms, a real cinematic quality and made the whole affair very dynamic. As I said before, Jenna Louise Coleman knocked it out of the park again, and Capaldi was his trademark mixture of briskly semi-kind and exasperated. Overall, my favorite episode so far this season. So Dan, was there anything you wanted to mention about the Cybermen this week or predictions for next week? Also, any final thoughts before we wrap up for the week? Now, Danny hitting the lead button would become a Cyberman, right? I, I think Based so, yeah. Computer? Okay. Yeah. So if he doesn't hit that, then he's okay. Yeah, I think... So hopefully he won't hit it. The last thing we saw was a call coming back from Clara to him, so hopefully he won't hit the lead before answering that call. And I think this is going to be the big turning point for the Doctor personality. I think you're right. I think absolutely once... Because the death thing has really changed him, and now he's kind of smack dab in the middle of it, so... I think it'll change things. Well, I think going up against the Master, this death thing, Clara betraying him, all of that is going to change him. It's going to, when it would normally make him go dark because he's so such a joyous person when he first regenerates, because we're going backwards this time, he's going to go from dark to being more joyous so that that sort of thing doesn't happen again, I think. That's my thought anyway. I right. think it's going to change him for the positive this time, and he's going to be more open, and when the next person who joins us on the Christmas special as the new companion happens, then that's going to be it, you know? I think he's going to be much yep. more open, much more, I don't know if he's going to be loving, but he's going to be at least more kind to the next person yeah. than he has been to Clara. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think blowing open that orb or whatever is going to make a big difference in that, too. Okay, and that's the big thing about this episode, I, I want people to remember, that did get kind of creeped out. Okay, this isn't saying that this is heaven. I mean, there's still the possibility that the doctor's going to destroy this orb, could send people to really where they're about to go. Yeah, that's okay, how I see it. The souls are just trapped, and they're not saying 
saying that this is it and the white noise thing's going to happen. So if any of you are creeped out by that stuff, I, I don't think that the end all be all that they're saying in the Doctor Who universe or in general. That's just kind of the way that they're they're letting the master be evil. Because that's I, a pretty evil thing to do. I also think once the Doctor is restored normal death, the connection to our bodies after the fact will be severed. So when you die, you no longer feel what happens to your body. That's just a result right. of her hijacking the bodies and putting it in the, the yep. sphere. And once that is gone, then death will go back to normal and we can all feel much better about... <laughs> well, you know what would be really cool? If the real death came in and took off the mask. <laughs> I don't think they want to deal with death, the entity. Go call that death like pizza. He's <laughs> yeah. a fun guy. Yeah, I don't think we need a Bill and Ted's excellent or bogus adventure. Well, I was going with Supernatural. The, the death on there, he liked uh, Chicago-style deep dish pizza. Yeah, the Bill and Ted's one liked it as well, if I recall. Oh, and, and I remember the board games from that movie. Yeah, exactly. That's a bad example of time travel like going to death and hell in those places. So watch that movie at your own risk. <laughs> exactly. All right, I, th good. I think that's about it for this week's Doctor Who discussion. Make sure to join us again for next week on our discussion of the Season 8 finale, the extended episode now, the 12th episode, Death in Heaven. All right, well, now it's time to move on to the show where every day is Halloween and its characters are always trapped inside a thriller. And that's Sleepy Hollow. With a very clever and well-done episode, Get the Abyss gazes back. Corbin's son Joe returns from overseas after receiving an honorable discharge after his platoon is wiped out in a bizarre attack. Ichabod and Abby soon realize that something is wrong with him. Meanwhile, Henry tells Irving that there is a way for him to free his soul, but it has a cost Irving may not want to pay. Nico, I know we both wanted Clancy Brown to come back and share Corbin. Can the flashbacks? Because I thought this episode was the way to do it. Through bringing in Corbin's son Joe, who was played by an actor who remarkably looked a lot like Clancy Brown. Nico, what did you think of the incorporation of Sheriff Corbin's son? And did the flashbacks with Clancy Brown live up to what she wanted? Yes and no. I thought it was the best we could hope for without actually getting Clancy Brown himself back on the I show, agree. which seems less likely now that he is starting a multiple episode arc on The Flash. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, he's going to play the general. That's but this, be fun. But this son character was a good addition for the episode and feeling-wise linked back to the Sheriff Corbin character we loved from the first season. Also, with the ending and the son leaving, it felt like a missed opportunity to have the son be part of the team and keep the Sheriff Corbin character alive on the show. I think that would have been a better way to go, but yeah. they went another way. Yeah, and we'll get to that more near the end of the discussion. Yep. Um, I had a few points on that, but you know, I like having Clancy Brown present on anything. Um, again, I, I know him and love him as Lex Luthor from the Justice League animated series, and also the movie Highlander. Yeah, it, it, I like him being around, and I like him because his warm, fuzzy sheriff character. Yeah. And in that first episode, it was so traumatic when he died, and I wanted to keep him around in flashbacks, but it would be good. Kind of maybe have him as a mentor character on this show. Maybe contracts or whatever just didn't work out that way. Again, it's hard to afford Clancy Brown and John Noble got the same show I would think yeah well I think his death was so such a catalyst in the first yeah. episode that it, it made more sense even though it would have been so much fun to have him on the show for a long time the catalytic event of his death was so much more instrumental to kicking this show off that that's why they brought someone like him onto the show just to have that impactful death he was only on the screen for maybe five to ten minutes and yeah. and still we're talking about him two seasons you know into the second season um, how much his character was in 
impact, and they they reference him all the time. So his character was so important to this, the mythos well, of this series. They need to, so we don't get so far down the path of wanting to see the horseman get redeemed. You know, we have to remember that in the back of our mind that that's there. Yeah. So that there is conflict and whatnot. So absolutely, because the last week kind of showed, oh, maybe the horseman's not the bad guy. But you got to remember, he took this great kind of warm fuzzy character away from us yep. for the first time as a pilot. Yeah, I thought you know this episode's conflict of Joby turned into a Wendigo by Henry. I thought it was a very good challenge for Abby because she had to you know face this possibility of having to kill Joe to protect everyone else she cared about from this you know monster this Wendigo he was turning into. Yeah, to her it really felt like because I thought the episode did a good job of making it feel this way that it was like she was losing her quote all over again. That we really felt that way because the actor that they casted looks so much like him, um, Clancy Brown, who's almost uncanny. And in addition to this, it gave that Pied Piper episode, which I thought was a standalone episode more purpose, because the bone the Piper was using as a food was used to turn Joe into the Wendigo. And if Team Ichabod finds out that he got that bone because of Halloween, that may complicate things even more. So I like it that this episode gave an importance to everything we've seen this season. It reminds the audience to watch closely, because, you know, every little thing might come to be an importance at the end or in a future episode. Because did you like Joe B, this Wendigo? And how this conflict resolved his broken friendship with Abby? Could we get the flashbacks really helped with those guys? But the conflict was good, too. Yeah, Dan, it was a good move to have Joe be the Wendigo because it forced Abby to face the possibility of having to kill someone she cared about for the good of the mission and the safety of the world. That gave this week's ticking clock more meaning as they raced to find a cure before Joe turned a fourth and final time. Additionally, I too like that this episode tied back to the Pied Piper episode, making the bone pipe that Henry crushed in that episode the thing that created the Wendigo curse in this episode. Great stuff, and I'm really enjoying how these seemingly disparate story arcs are all tying together into the season-long overarching story arc. Great writing and continuity in the show. It's good stuff. Speaking of continuity, how about those uh, Revolutionary War connections we got this week with Daniel Boone? Yeah. That was the coolest explanation ever to a Scoon Kid Scoon Kid hat because of him hiding the scars that was inflicted upon him by his brother that became a Wendigo. That was really wild stuff. And if you go online, they actually do History Channel. Yeah, like uh, documentary things are fake, but it matches up with the uh, stories they tell on Sleepy Hollow every week. That's cool. That so is it's cool. really fun. And I mean, they do it like it's, you know, like a Ken Bird documentary. Like it's like a real, real, it's like really a real real life, you know, true history thing. So that's really kind of fun. And, I mean, this just made Daniel Boone seem so much more awesome than that 60s character that he was depicted as on TV. I mean, this, is, this is a whole new Daniel Boone here, folks. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I also kind of like how Ichabod was the one who convinced the descendants of the Shawnee Indians to give them a way to cure Joe. When Holly just thought, you know, he could walk in there and smooth talk them all. That was that was good stuff, too. Uh, I like that they made the Revolutionary War characters kind of kick butt this week. Did you like it, Nico? I did, Dan. We love the way this show ties the occult, witches, and magic to the history of the Revolutionary War, and making Daniel Boone the brother of a man cursed as a Wendigo, and explain his penchant to wear animal skins on his head as a way to hide the scars that said brother inflicted on him was yet another brilliant Sleepy Hollow twistery addition. I like that word, twistery. Yeah. I love this. Also, I really enjoyed seeing Crane show up Holly's failed attempt to sweet talk the Shawnee into giving them a cure. Great stuff, again. I love the competition between these two characters and how I know it stems from Holly trying to impress the Mills sisters and Crane feeling threatened as not the only revolutionary war history and occult expert on the team. Because in the past, everybody went to Crane for all of the information and now they also have Holly, so they both feel threatened. It's great tension between these two alpha male characters. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, they fit that right on the body 
Holly, since Holly showed up. Because speaking of Holly, there's also a brief side of this episode where you were right, Nico, on Holly's attraction for both Abby and Jenny becoming a fun storyline. Because I think when Ichabod finds out what's going on, it's going to get even more fun to really enhance that alpha male conflict that you were talking about. And I think that maybe the women there, the reason why he's sticking around. Nico, did you pick up on these things as well? Yeah, as I, I was saying a second ago, I, I think it is why he has friction with Crane because he thinks that Ichabod has something going with Abby and Holly is interested in Abby causing some tension between the two males for Abby's affections. It also makes things even more interesting because Jenny and Holly so obviously had a previous relationship and that complicates things with him having a thing for Abby now. This could, of course, be all worked out if everyone just put their cards out on the table, but that won't happen because it's so much more fun for us, the viewers, to see everything hemming and hawing and all the, you know, movings and all this tension building. This is going to cause some humorous exchanges in the coming weeks and it's it's all going to lead to maybe a giant blow up or a misunderstanding right. and it's just going to be a lot of fun seeing all of that happen in the next couple weeks. Well, and it keeps those Abby and Ichabod shippers, please, get happy. Oh, I hate those guys. <laughs> I know, I know, we, I know, but, but when you're thinking about it as a writer or a marketing thing, you, you kind of want to keep it rolling. Oh, absolutely. So to keep it open-ended and guessing to appease those people or keep them interested in the show, that works, that makes sense, so that's where, good thing Holly's doing that, but at the same time, it's keeping us from getting annoyed because this misunderstanding is going to be a lot of fun to see. Exactly. And probably just laugh a lot. And again, it gets them away from using the the culture shock jokes because much you can get jokes from other avenues because yep. I think those will eventually get old. I agree. And going into more serious matters, I know there's a big part of Ichabod that wants to save his son, but after all the cruelty he showed his stepson by turning to try to turn trusted allies like Captain Irving and Joe into monsters, I just don't see that it's possible. Okay, really, this villain has kicked me off to the point where I want him to get his Columbus. Yes, I know that means John Noble's off the show, but he's really making me angry. So, Nico, where do you stand on Henry? I agree, Dan, that Ichabod and especially Katrina still believe that Henry is not beyond saving, but his recent actions tend to make me believe he has gone beyond the point of no return. This is made even more true with the final scene of this episode where he unleashes that deadly poison creature on his mother Katrina, and I believe will cause a demon to take up residence in her or be born through her, such as the Antichrist has been shown to be born in movies before. I believe that yeah. this action will convince Ichabod, but maybe not Katrina, that Henry is too far gone to be redeemed. I don't know how this will all work itself out, but I I imagine that we will not see Team Crane able to save Henry and Ultimate will be forced to destroy him despite his mother and father's hopes he can be saved. Yeah, they kind of drew the line in the sand with Henry, I thought, of this episode. Saying that, yeah, this guy, he, he's gone. He's beyond redemption. That's what I was thinking. But again, this could create a rift between Henry and Ichabod. There could be a situation where you know, Ichabod defeats him and puts him out of his misery. Okay, Katrina's not too thrilled about that. Thinking he still could have been saved. Yeah. So we'll see where all that goes and that could lead her back to Horseman. We'll see. Well, I think it's going to eventually break away from well, I can kind of have his own angle on everything, but we'll see. And in regards to future episodes, I thought the episode made it unclear on if Joe was a part of the team or not. I agree with you, Nico, that I think he's done. I think this is a one-shot character and he left. But they really confused us when Abby showed him the team headquarters. So like, oh yeah, cool, he's going to be a part of the team. And then he's like, oh, can I have a, a letter of recommendation to Quantico? Because I was like, okay, that's a missed opportunity. Like, I mean, you kind of said earlier, Nico. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, did you think it was unclear or where were you? Where yeah. Did you that close to I, I too thought he was going to join the team and then we had that last second where he asked for a recommendation to Quantico and I think maybe that was intentional because we saw Abby sort of have the same look and feel that we had was oh I thought this meant you were sticking around oh but yeah I'd, I'd love to help you if, if that's what you want so I think we were meant to think he was going to join and then he kind of wasn't ready for it yet maybe that means he'll come back but I don't know yeah I was wondering if he's going to be like a like an FBI connection when things get to a bigger scale that's always a possibility because I mean we did see those 
shots of basically Sleepy Hollow looking like it's in the middle of a war zone. Exactly. So maybe he like brings in the cavalry or something. It's always on. a possibility. Always a possibility because they did leave it so open ended at the end, and we don't know exactly what the what his role will be or what he plans to do. So yeah. Yeah. Got to get. I asked you uh, another question about the bug thing that gets you Katrina swallowed yeah. and all of that. I feel like we pretty much covered that with the last point. Yeah, I think essentially it's gonna either be a demon that possesses her or is born from her, and that's where I think that's gonna go. Yeah. So with that, why don't we move on to a really great episode of Castle that I thought really had a lot of intelligence put behind it, that really was not hokey at all. I mean, this is something that could a crime that could really happen, and that's what made this episode kind of scary for Halloween, even though it really wasn't a Halloween episode. So let's talk about the Castle episode. Even murder. Castle and Beckett investigate an internet star's murder and find photos of the crime posted online by the killer, leading them to believe they're dealing with a social media sociopath who may be looking for more victims. Man, this was really a brilliant episode of Castle that I thought felt like a person of interest episode. It was almost better than the person of interest episode. We got the sweet, believe it or not. As I just thought it really made you think about the world around us where things that were considered to be science fiction maybe five or ten years ago, such as 3D printing and broadcasting your entire life just using your cell phone, are now science fact. It could be quite dangerous to the wrong hands as we saw from this episode. Nico, did you think this was a castle mystery that brought the audience to a high level of thinking? I loved this episode of Castle This Week and yeah. feel like it was one of the best standalone episodes of the entire series and especially in the fa- in the past few years. Yeah, I'd say the past two years, yeah, for sure. I thought the entire premise was just brilliant. The idea that a guy would target internet celebrities and use their oversharing and notoriety against them as an ingenious move to give this week's killer a unique signature and made this week's castle episode something we have not not seen before and lifted it up to the type of episode like you mentioned that was we would see on person of interest that challenges its audience to engage think about and discuss the topics and ideas raised by the episode the mystery this week was just playing great and drew me into the story so so well oh yeah i mean this was brilliant that good episode castle needed yes very much so thought they were losing their thunder and the writing was getting weak and they just didn't have that intelligence that they had good earlier seasons and this was just great again i mean with that i mean the scary part of this episode the part that made it so engaging like you said you was just how quickly this killer became so infamous through the internet. I mean, this episode pretty much said in a period of three days, he became, you know, a killer that was just synonymous as the Zodiac Killer. And if you've seen that movie, it kind of took him years to gain recognition or a period of months. But this guy really, I mean, again, as I said, did it in days. Because I'm surprised something like this hasn't happened yet in real life. I don't want to see it happen, but the, the possibility is there. So hopefully this episode, again, shows like person of interest, might get law enforcement agencies to prepare for a social media killer or an incident like this? Nico, do you think that the realistic possibility of serial killers in today's society being able to gain power so easily through the use of social media is what made this episode grab the attention of audiences? Dan, I do think that the realism in this week's killer and how they captured the instantaneousness of the internet and the notoriety that it can grant people was what made this episode so great and stand out in my mind. The only reason that I think we have not seen a real-life serial killer like this week's killer yet is that the FBI and other law enforcement law enforcement agencies have such amazing cybercrime teams that it would be difficult for a serial killer to be able to taunt the police and FBI and get away with it without being found. Thus, the real killers, in an effort to remain hidden and able to continue to operate with impunity, tend to not taunt the authorities in a way that can be easily traced, like the internet at the moment. And it's very difficult for non-hacker slash security experts to do that. It is, if you are a computer expert or a hacker, you can hide from the authorities, and it will take them a long time to try and sift 
through all the ways that you bounce it around the internet and around the world and you can obscure your location but that's a very difficult skill to find and that's why I think we have not seen this sort of crime or taunting by a real killer because it takes a long time to hone those skills as I was mentioning to be that proficient in computers and network security to be able to truly post their crimes anonymously that is why we see this sort of taunts and bragging online by criminals but mostly in the hacker community themselves if a violent psychopath was also a hacker which I'm sure there are a few they might employ this sort of thing but mostly we'll only see it within the cybercrime community and not the psychopath killer until some of those individuals are also hackers and security professionals themselves now is that why you think they brought in the cybercrime officer in this episode to remind people that there are you know authorities in place to deal with this sort of situation I do think that that had a big thing plus he was involved and had been involved with the right. killer in a previous case and was unable to help him and I, that brought an emotional impact to it as well but exactly. absolutely I think that to show the cybercrime officer was important to how important it is and we also have the the female I'm forgetting her name but the female agent or the female detective yep. who is the cybercrime specialist for the precinct and she can always find and, and dive through all the, the stuff on the internet and, and find what they need to, to do it might take some time it might take longer than we'd like on a TV show in real life but they can weed through all those little yeah. bits and can find people pretty pretty well so it's, it's very difficult to, to remain anonymous online well we saw that with the whole uh, Boston Marathon incident a couple years ago that's a great point absolutely they, they tracked them down through Facebook photos and a bunch of stuff so yeah and again Council really does a good job because paid paid respect to the law enforcement people that do these jobs and stuff like that yep. so again I think this is just another great example yep. and really you know Council sometimes I'll just stop with the mystery being good but the actor they got to play this social media serial killer was very impressive as well with him I, you know I really thought he helped Stana Kenick deliver one of her best and most content interrogation scenes on this show I mean the guy was a one shot killer here but Beckett going toe to toe with him I thought was right up there with you know some of the confrontations he had with Senator Brackett got that actor pretending to be got the triple killer in the first episode got people involved with her mother's murder Nico were you impressed by how good this social media serial character was and did you think the interrogation scene was one intense display of acting Dan I, I really did like this villain I thought he was one of the best single shot killers we've had on this series in yeah. a long time and that brought out a lot of great performances by everyone on this week's episode that being said I was not all that enamored with the interrogation scene it may have been that we've seen too many of them already or that I just didn't buy into it this week not that there was anything wrong with it but I didn't find it any better or worse than plenty of other great scenes we've had out of Stanakotic I guess that is a testament to her abilities to be great every week, but this one wasn't anything special for me. I'm definitely not saying that it was not good or anything like that. I don't want to make it seem like I thought she did a bad job this week. I just didn't stand out. It just didn't stand out for me. When I think of great Beckett versus a villain moments, I think of the first time she confronted Bracken in the kitchen scene as the epitome of her best work. This week's interrogation, for me, didn't live up to that, so I didn't see it as anything super special this week. I think it was just the countdown clock of that race to save those two guys before they were killed or whatever okay really got me invested in it good so just that intensity and, and how that was driven again this is one of the best castle episodes we've seen in a while yep that I think it, it it seemed really good to me because this was good castle again compared to what we've got you know past year or so 
So maybe this wasn't the best, but it's better than what we've had in a while. So I think that's why I got so excited about it. Okay. Get really, I mean, these types of episodes are what Castle needs to do to get their audience excited. You can raise the stakes. Instead of using crazy plot devices like kidnapping and amnesia, that really kind of did sit well with me, especially in the premiere episode for the season. Green Castle is a show that got itself got the map with that two-part episode of the second season, where a serial killer was, was stalking Beckett. And as we saw with this episode, the serial killer messing with Beckett premise still finds success today. Six years down the road. Nico, do you agree that these are the types of stories Castle should be telling to keep finding success? Yes, I do, Dan. I enjoy Castle and Beckett going up against villains or killers that have some sort of connection to them, like Bracken, 3XK, the serial killer that stalked Beckett you just mentioned, and the Taken episode where they kidnapped Alexis. The triple killer is essentially Castle's nemesis, and Senator Bracken was Beckett's, and those story arcs have been some of the best we've seen on this series. Where the killer has some sort of connection to Castle and or Beckett have been and will continue to be the best stories of the week, and this week, having the killer attack Castle and Beckett online and taunt them directly that they couldn't catch him in time was a great way to do that again with this week's one-shot killer. I thought that yep. was exactly what you were talking about, about making a connection between our two star characters and the killer, every, not every week, but occasionally with the killer, and that will lead to some of the better episodes we'll see in this series. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what you gotta do. You have to use emotion here. You can't just get away with just going through a simple pursuit. Uh, this episode that it created, I hope they can keep it going. Yeah. Great start there. And finally, on a lighter note, my family and I really got a kick out of the Castle Auto-Tune video. Uh, that was just great stuff, and really I thought it played off well with kind of Nathan Phillips' usual hijinks on the internet. Again, I mean, this is just priceless humor, and I'm sure the video probably exploded on the real-life internet if it was posted. Got a abt.com or the YouTube page after the episode. Nico, did you think this auto-tune video of Castle goes up there with some of the other humorous hijinks featuring Nathan Fillon on the internet? I thought it was a perfect way to end this week's episode. Fun, funny, and perfectly it was Castle trying to be hip and cool and everything blowing up in his face. Stuff yes. that we love about the character. That's part of why we love this character, as I just said. I thought it was excellent, but I'm not sure if it will actually go viral like you think. Often these sort of things that are produced to be a, quote, viral video never work out, and some dumb video with a cat will get 100 million views. You just never know with the internet. It could ex This one could explode and be that next viral video, but it's probably going to be some cat who falls and plays the piano or something crazy like that. Yeah. You just never know with the internet what's going to blow up. Or some other video that Nathan Fell discovers like Double Rainbows. Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought it was fun and I felt the castle had that's entertaining for yeah. a video. Yeah. All right, well, speaking of calm or viral videos, this week's Supernatural actually gave us a sequel to an episode that was an entire viral camcorder video. So let's talk about the Supernatural episode, which I thought kind of got the show back on track, called Paper Moon. A series of werewolf attacks points to Kate, the werewolf Sam and Dean let live. Nico, I've got to say the Supernatural this week was much easier for me to watch than what we've had so far this season, because things were back to normal for the most part. Gonna have the brothers address Dean's time as a demon like we wanted. Like you wanted, Nico, using Kate, the one-shot character who got an entire season 8 episode focused on her called Bitten. Now, Nico, as a big fan of Bitten, got this actress that played Kate. God, did you like how she was brought back to address the issues created by the DVD in this aftermath? You know, Dan, I was a big fan of the episode Bitten, but not as much of a fan of Kate the second time around. Her story with the, with turning her sister and then having to put her down was supposed to be analogous to the brothers and their continued struggle to save each other despite the terrible things they do and situations they find themselves in. This worked fine, but it just was not entirely satisfactory. I think I might have preferred a just plain werewolf episode with no link to what the brothers had just gone through, so it was more back in the saddle, like Dean said he yeah. wanted, rather than linking back to their continued struggles and 
overall arcs. Although it was nice that this case did make them start at least talking about what they've been through and what has happened to them. So I guess it was successful in that regard, just not so successful overall. Yeah, I think what should have maybe addressed that issue was he maybe going too far with getting back in the saddle or not wanting to address it because Sam tried to get it out of him. But I think that would have maybe made more sense because I, I really think we wanted to see Dean go out there and just start kicking butt here. Yeah, and we kind of got it, but not all the way. Yeah, the other problem with it was was they keep bringing up this Lester thing with that guy that Dean tricked him to make a deal with the Crossroads demon because you don't remember his name. And I I don't know. This just doesn't seem to fit the same character because the fact that there were, they said that there's even more people he did this to kind of made it even worse and I just think they should stop addressing it because it's just not working. They're trying to make the brother even between Dean's actions as a demon and, and I guess whatever Sam was doing trying to find him and I just I just don't think it works. Nico, were you annoyed that Lester was brought up again? Yeah, that was annoying for sure. It seemed more like a way for Dean to deflect the questions and line of conversation that Sam yep. was driving at and this was used to focus the conversation on what Sam had done rather than what Dean had done or how Dean felt about his time as a demon. It was a stalling tactic so that Dean didn't have to deal with that sort of stuff. So in that sense, I was okay with it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was annoying. Yeah. And going back a step, I mean, it wasn't this entirely, this wasn't the entire reason, but, you know, Kate's story, I, I didn't think the sequel, I agree with you on that, Nika, was as good as the first episode. Yeah. I just, there was something special about that episode, with it being told from the perspective of, you know, a guest character, kind of Blair Witch Project style, that just, it just made it special. And, and this almost took away from it. And because it wasn't told that way, it just wasn't as good of a sequel. Again, I mean, I was invested in Kate trying to find some good, kind of what happened to her, could helping her sister survive a car accident by turning into a fellow werewolf, could Kate having to kill her sister, and how that made her neither ally or enemy to the Winchesters, because, I mean, the show's really never had this. But again, it, it, it just didn't pack up the emotional punch because of the other episode. Again, Nico, I kind of asked what you thought of this as a follow-up episode. I mean, I feel like you kind of already addressed that somewhat come in relationship to the brothers and their issues. Yeah, it, it just was not nearly as good as the original. And yeah. That, that actually tends to be the case on this series, that yeah. the second time we meet a character or follow up an episode never really seems up to live up to the first, except for Charlie, who is always awesome. And I heard and is actually... Felicia Day. Yeah, I actually heard is making another appearance later this season, so yay for more Felicia Day. But as for this one with Kate, not a huge fan of the rehash or continuation of her story. They need a Felicia Day episode really bad. Yeah, I think she might be there for the 200th, the musical one so that could be a lot of fun because she's a great singer and you know we just love Charlie. Or that episode could be really ridiculous. I think even if it is ridiculous it could be a lot of fun still. Yeah yeah I just I don't know I'm, I'm trusting them less and less at all. Well I mean Once More with Feeling was pretty ridiculous but it is one of the best Buffy episodes of the entire series so. But I trust Joss more. That, that's always true. I mean I do I trust Joss me a lot more. And again I don't have this animosity towards Jeremy Carver that I have toward uh, Sarah Gamble when she was in charge. Right. But again this show it's in season 10 because this is what happens and no matter how good of a writer you are sometimes you can't prevent a show from getting stale that's but true CW won't pick up on that Again, moving forward, I mean, I guess for speculation for future episodes, for the end of the episode, during the scenes where Dean was at conflict with Sam, the demon Dean's words about what he was going to do to Sam being the worst torture ever kept playing in my head, making me worry that maybe he brought up Lester because he's faking it, and the show killer known as Demon Dean is actually still there, and he's just pulling a ruse on Sam. But my fears kind of got alleviated in the ending scene of the episode where Dean wanted to go out and do some good to make up for his time as a demon, because that sounds like the character I know and love. 
But the fact that the episode capitalized on this makes me wonder if he really is kind of pulling Stan's leg. Nico, do you think the DVD is faking me too, even after this scene? I know you wanted it because it kind of made it makes the DVD story worthwhile, but are they that smart to do that or do they even want to? You know, I don't. I, I did have that feeling in the early part of this episode, but by that final scene, most of that feeling had dissipated and I was yeah. left believing that Dean is back and wanted to hunt because he felt guilty for all the bad he had done as a demon and now wanted to even out the scorecard or ledger and start doing some good in hopes of evening it all out. That makes me think our thoughts last week about this being a giant fake out were not warranted or at least yeah. that they weren't going to be realized. I don't think they're brave enough to pull a stuff like that. Well, I think it was just too easy was the problem and yeah. that's why we started imagining some of these great ideas that, oh, maybe they're going to pull this giant fake out and it's going to have been amazing or something, you know, it could be something really cool and now they just went the safe route and that's a little frustrating. Well, again, that's what a show does in season 10. Yeah. They do what they do to stay on the air and keep producing stories. Okay, they're going to get the money regardless for the CW, unfortunately. Well, it's still getting some of the best ratings on the, yeah. the network, so... But that's not saved. Yeah, but it, 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 it's enough to keep the, the network yeah. alive. And, and the CW is never... Well, I shouldn't say never, but it really, in reality, is not going to compete with the big four. You know, it right. is it is the much smaller 20 years later stepchild of the big networks. Yeah, but but again, I, Supernatural at one time was as good, if not better, as some of the network shows that were out there. Especially oh, I totally the first time. Again, totally you know, it's, it's not there anymore, and I think cause CW has better shows right now than Supernatural. But again, there's a loyal fan base that's going to stick with it. So, I mean, I guess more power to them, but I give them credit. Again, their fan base is rabid, so, you know, kudos to those people for sticking with it and, and still being excited, you know? So with that, we're going to move on to Canadian Center Person of Interest that maybe a little concerned they were running out of steam, but then they kind of ramped up things back up at the end of the episode. So, so I think it's just an episode that kind of went with the idea good things come to those who wait. So let's talk about Person of Interest episode, Pretty Tenders. <laughs> The team's new number is a mild-mannered insurance agent who has a secret identity. Shaw is forced to run computer backup when Finch is called away to a conference in Hong Kong as part of his cover identity, and there he meets an attractive computer businesswoman. Because episode had a lot of good ideas, but I just didn't think they reached their full potential. Because providing the satisfaction we have gotten from past versus the Mitchell Company. For example, I thought the guy faking was going to be another hapless character, like back in season two. But I just didn't think he lived up to it. And having Shaw run the computers while Finch was away could have been a great way to mix things up, but also Ultimately, she ended up in the field. I wasn't even really challenged by being in a different role, which normally goes to Finch. God, Nico, did you feel the same way about this episode? Because in some of the storylines, not reaching its full potential, especially after coming up that great performance we got from Jason Miller last week. I suppose a few of the arcs could have been more fully developed, and we would have been happier seeing Shaw more engaged in running the computer nerve center as tech backup to the guys in the field, rather than just doing the bare minimum and then ending up in the field herself. But in reality, I enjoyed this episode the way it was. I like this week's person of interest being a guy who was inspired by the man in the suit and wanted to take up his mantle as best he could when he disappeared and things started getting darker and crime started to get worse. I thought that this person of interest served his purpose to re-inspire Reese and remind Reese of the good he's doing and the need for the person of interest team. Also, I much preferred this week's person of interest not being very good at being a hero, but doing it nonetheless because he saw a need for heroes and wanted to help the woman he had a crush on learn about her brother's death and what really happened. Plus, it was pretty hilarious how inept he was and many of his offhanded comments were comedic gold like calling Shaw Reese's girlfriend and when Reese said that she wasn't his girlfriend he incredulously said why not so actually I really enjoyed this episode okay yeah I mean I just I don't know I think it's off the 
Or maybe I just went back to one of the ones. Maybe. Again, I was going to add a Lyasa story to the list of things and stuff that did not live up to its full potential. Because I was disappointed that the attack he ordered got the police precinct was not Elias making his move. Got the plan I believe he had brewing over the past two seasons, but a strike read out could another criminal notice the armor. But thankfully, the writers made up for it at the end of the episode. When this conflict with the armor drew the line, could the stand for a war between Elias and Domino? Because I think once on top, this is going to be when his master plan goes into play. So I guess that means we should just chalk this up as one of those that says good things come those two. Way. Kind of like what we got from the HR scenario. Now, Nico, do you think this episode set up of a war between Dominic and Elias will play off as something more bigger and satisfying? Yeah, I, I thought this episode set up the war between Dominic and Elias as sort of an old guard versus the new guy on the street, but where that usually ends with the new guy using new techniques and technology to unseat the old guard, I think this will be different this time as Samaritan and the machine will be sucked into the war on opposite sides, and the person of interest team will end up working with Elias or on his his side at least, maybe unknowingly, and Samaritan will work with Dominic, or rather I should say Samaritan will attempt to find the person of interest team through the conflict and drawing them out, and the machine will use Elias and the person of interest team to help make sure that Samaritan's plans are not achieved. Thus, since this is the precursor to what we suspect will be Elias's push for control of New York City, I think we will see the person of interest team work with Elias, and then, when they are successful in defeating Dominic and the Brotherhood, they will, in a sense, have helped their next big bad get a stranglehold on New York City, and their next mission will be to try and tear him back down, but find out it's much harder now that Elias has eliminated the only other organization that was a threat to his dominance of New York City. I see this and the Samaritan arc as the final season battles next season, and see them wrapping things up next season with defeating Elias and Samaritan all in next season and making that the final season. And then we will see the, the, the defeat of the Brotherhood this season, as well as either getting the machine out of hiding or somehow crippling Samaritan or both so that it can work as we've seen in the past. That's where I see things going. Okay, I really think that this saved the episode for me a little bit. I mean, I just I just didn't get invested in the person of interest this week, and maybe that's because I just, there wasn't this emotionally powerful connection that I normally have with these characters, and there really wasn't a wild twist as far as that story went. But with the gang war thing, there was. And again, I just really want Elias to get involved in this show. So this was a good step forward in that, and really made up for things on this episode for me. Again, maybe I'm going to get more invested next week, but I think things may go back towards kind of the Samaritan direction as well. Okay. And again, I think this is going to pay off. I think this is ways to improve the Dominic story. Could get me more into it and not see it as a rethread HR. And uh, speaking of Samaritan, as for speculations on that and that conflict, I thought the businesswoman Fitch met in Hong Kong was the beginning of the machine putting Fitch into contact with people who could voice its side of the argument that began with Fitch last week. But it turned out the businesswoman was an operative for Samaritan. Could based on Fitch hiring that shady guy to steal her computer. I'm wondering if he's going to get deeper and deeper into the dirty business for the purpose of taking Samaritan down. Because this is going to be kind of the season where Fitch goes dark a little bit. Nico, do you think Fitch is going to get involved, get some shady dealings? Okay, what idea do you like better? The businesswoman being the machine voicing inside of the argument, or being an operative of Samaritan? Dan, I didn't see this week's woman that Fitch met as an operative of Samaritan. Rather, Samaritan is interested in her company and Greer is in the process of acquiring that company she owns so that they and Samaritan can get access to the algorithm she was working on so that Samaritan can upgrade itself. Essentially, that's where I saw her being this week. So I don't know that necessarily Finch is going to go dark. I think he was just installing a worm so that when Samaritan takes over her company and she logs into their server, that his worm will go onto the server and it'll give him a backdoor into Samaritan or it'll at least give him a, a way to spy on what Samaritan is trying to do with this woman's company. That's how I saw this going. I think him leading her on was a little bit that he was attracted to her, but a little bit also to drive that 
that goal of getting his his software and his back door into her computer. And so that's where I see it going, rather than her being a knowing accomplice or a knowing operative of Samaritan. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I thought so too. I thought she also might be another like side love interest for Finch. I saw that for sure as being a possibility. Yeah, that kind of went out the window too. So, kind of, no, I was a little disappointed. I thought this was kind of the easy route to go with it, but maybe there's a twist or more complications to come. I think we can much. always expect that with this show. <laughs> yeah. So again, I mean, I, I didn't think it was as good enough so much. It always seems to build up to something else. So I'm not going to say that the show's like gone off the rails or anything because I really, again, think it's going to pay off into something good soon. Yeah, I hope so. All right. So let's move on to a show that's always got something good and really brought in a great villain to freak us all out for Halloween. And that's the Star Wars Rebels episode, Rise of the Old Masters. The Rebels undertake a daring rescue mission, only to find themselves facing a powerful foe. I think every Star Wars fan out there had the love that the lesson of this episode was the famous Yoda quote, There is no try, only do. But I couldn't help but feel sorry for Kanan, as he thought he lacked the skills to train Ezra, making me think Kanan was a padawan who never became a full-fledged Jedi, because his master sacrificed himself to help Kanan survive Order 66. Nico, what were your thoughts about Kanan lacking the confidence in himself to train Ezra? Can you agree with my theory about his backstory? Dan, I do agree that I don't... I don't think that Kanan ever was a master before, and maybe he never finished his own training as you suggested, but he could also have only made it to the rank of Jedi Knight, having passed the okay. trials but never moved on to train others. If he indeed did not finish his training, then it would make sense that he was spared because his master sacrificed himself to save Kanan. That's a great way to look at it. But it could also have been true that he was off on a mission as a Jedi Knight on his own before he was ready to become a master and take a Padawan himself when the Order 66 came down, and thus he was spared because he was on a diplomatic mission or something where there were no clones with him. Whatever the case may be, I hope we get to see his backstory explained at some point and we get answers because any way that goes, it will be really interesting to see and explain some of those questions we have already about where he came from, how he yeah. how he came to be the leader of this rebel cell and everything like that. I think it'll be really interesting when we do get to see how he got there. Well, something happened with his master that was not good because when the Inquisitor brought him up, he kind of got a little angry, got upset. At least that's how I took it as. Okay. So I think that says something happened, or maybe he sacrificed himself. I don't know if it's that extreme, but something in that department went down. And it kind of rattled him. So I like that he's a Jedi Knight that's kind of haunted by something dark or evil. Okay. And, and speaking of the Jedi Masters, using one that we got to know through kind of the Clone Wars animated series, I thought it made for a great plot device to get us invested in this episode's story of the Rebels breaking into a high-security detention facility. It really made us feel Kate's emotional disappointment when he discovered it was all a trap to uh, comment on the words of Admiral Ackbar there. Yeah, Nico, did you think sending the Rebels on a rescue mission to save a character from the Clone Wars series made for a good way to get us interested in the episode? Okay, were you hit with an emotional thought of bricks when you discovered it was all a trap? I think making it a master that we had seen from the Clone Wars series was a great way to tie this series back to that series, but having any former master being used as bait by the Inquisitor here would have carried an emotional punch regardless of whether we knew that master or not because it was such a dastardly way to suck Jedi into a trap. What self-respecting Jedi with the means to do so would not attempt to free a trapped master, regardless of who that master was. But Dan, right. you're correct. By making it someone the audience was familiar with, made it even more emotionally compelling to watch. Yeah, I mean, it was perfect. And really, it could have been any character 
from Clone Wars that would have worked there. Yep. So that that was perfect. I think it because it was a minor character, that was a good idea, so you don't really kick people off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I think if it was like Ahsoka or something like that, we'd be just furious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good. Speaking of the trap, wow, does the Inquisitor make for a great villain? Okay, this is what General Grievous honestly should have been in Episode 3. Because if they could put a villain this great in Episode 7, then we are in for one awesome movie. Because this guy is the total pack. He has the cold alien look of Dark Maul, a connection to Kanan's master that wants to tempt Ezra into joining the Dark Side. Plus, he has a British accent, which is what all best villains have, according to Jaguar car commercials. Nico, what did you make of the Inquisitor as a villain? Got his whirling double-bladed lightsaber that he could throw like a boomerang. How come Kanan doesn't have one of those? <laughs> Such a great introduction to the Inquisitor character and letting us know just how villainous he is. Great job, and I love Jason Isaacs as the voice because it reminds me so much of that great villain he played in the Patriot movie with yeah, Mel Gibson. Right. Good stuff all around. And the Inquisitor is going to be such a great big bad for this series that it will get us ready for the great villain that we may see in Episode 7. I don't want to spoil anything for Episode 7, but we may see a previously good character go bad in 7, and that could make for an amazing big bad in that film. I won't go into any more details just in case it spoils something for someone out there, but we did talk about it a week or two ago in the News with Nico section. So if you want to know what my thoughts are, go back two weeks and catch that Star Wars news. As for this... I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> As for this Inquisitor character, that whirling double-bladed lightsaber was amazing. And essentially for me, it was the next-gen Darth Maul dual-blade lightsaber. Oh yeah. Awesome stuff. Because I hope they saw one of those as a toy. <laughs> I think that there has to be one. Moving forward, I like the concept of those flying alien stingray-looking creatures, thinking they could mate with the shuttle Harrow as flying, because it reminded me of those creatures that landed on the Millennium Falcon when it was in that cave that was actually a space worm during The Empire Strikes Back. But I liked how Rebels put its own twist on it by Hera using the aliens guess her fleet to help her fellow crewmates escape the Empire. Nico, did you feel that this was a very clever and imaginative concept? Yeah, I did. I, I too thought these giant flying stingray-like creatures reminded me of the Minox from Empire that we saw chewing on the power cables of the Millennium Falcon. It was a brilliant move by Hera to use the jamming signal that was acting like a mating call to the Rebels' advantage by hurting the giant flying stingrays and using them as a weapon against the Empire. Great stuff and a, another great callback to the original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, very clever and again, just another one of those great throwbacks that they've always seemed to do on the show every week. Yep. A lot of fun and the design of those creatures was pretty cool too. Oh, it's great. Okay, kind of in wrapping things up a little bit, I think that this first encounter with the Inquisitor is a defining moment for Kanan. Can realizing that the old Jedi Order was over and the answer to creating a new one lies in the future by training Ezra in the ways of the Force. Can nothing said that more than the moment where Kanan used an impressive display of the Force to inspect to smack the Inquisitor up against the ceiling to save Ezra's life. Nico, do you also think that depending on the future instead of the past is the lesson that Kanan took away from this episode? That is what ultimately got him to not just try and train Ezra, but actually do the job? You know, I didn't see it that way. What I saw was Kanan forced to use his abilities to save Ezra and to go head-to-head -head with the Inquisitor. This interaction gave both Kanan some confidence that Ezra's natural instincts and abilities were successful in keeping Ezra alive while Kanan could go head-to-head -head with the Inquisitor, and at the same time, it showed Kanan just how much they needed Ezra to be trained if they were ever going to be able to combat enemies like the Inquisitor, the Emperor, or Vader. Thus, I think this encounter with the Inquisitor was more of a wake-up call to Kanan that he needed to train Ezra and stop trying to train him. I don't think it really had to do with the future or the past of the Jedi Order, rather just just a realization that there was no one else to train Ezra and that he had to do it because there was no other master go going to come along and train him. That is how I saw this encounter and what it did to Kanan. So I, I, 
I, a little bit. I, I think what we're saying is the same thing. Yeah. But we're looking at it maybe from a, a different perspective. Yeah. It really. I mean, really, what I meant is, is no one's there. Yeah. So that, in that they, sense, the we Jedi are... from the past aren't there anymore. Yep. Yeah. Now he's got to. Yeah. Yeah. We're on the same page there. So I, I was trying to, I guess, do a more fancier Yoda elegant Jedi way, <laughs> explaining it. So yeah, we'll go with that. Okay. But yeah, I, I like that they're at to a point where they're beginning to work together, and Kanan's got his confidence back because he's a character that needs confidence, and I like seeing him come up. So it's good stuff. And that force push move was pretty sweet. Yep. And I can't wait to see what more is going to come in his battles with the Inquisitor because that's going to be great stuff that they did a brilliant job with this villain. I agree. Which we kind of expected them to do because there were some great villains like Clone Wars as well. Alright, so moving forward, we're going to talk about another villain who seems to be causing quite a bit of trouble in the Avatar universe because she kind of made her first strike in this episode and things got pretty scary. So let's talk about the thrilling episode of The Legend of Korra entitled Enemy at the Gates. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. Kuvira threatens Zhao Fu. Bolin is caught in the middle of the bad blood between Su Beifang and Kuvira. I was surprised he Kuvira threatened Zhao Fu so quickly, as I thought Korra could get more of a chance to reason with her first, and a bigger villain would be revealed, before things escalated into an all-out war. But this conflict did act as a good way to get backstory on Kuvira, get her falling out with Su, which explained why she wants to be this dictator of the Earth Kingdom. Do you think it was too early in the season for Kuvira to threaten Zhao Fu? Could in the flashbacks help you better understand her motivation to become a dictator? Dan, I thought the flashbacks made it much clearer why Kuvira is so focused on uniting the Earth Empire and being the dictator that rules over the entirety of the new Earth Empire, and that that desire started when Su refused to step up and take over as the new ruler of the Earth Kingdom. Kuvira saw this as Su turning her back on the Earth Kingdom and focusing on her own city above the needs of the entire kingdom. Kuvira got it in her head that she could do better and needed to save the Earth Kingdom, and the best way to do that was to unite it under a strong empress herself. As for whether it was too soon for this battle and Kuvira threatening Zaufu? Maybe it is. But then again, there are only 13 episodes and we are now halfway through this final season. So we needed to get things rolling if we are going to get a satisfactory ending and wrap up to the series in the next seven episodes. I don't foresee this battle at Zaufu being the location of the final battle of the season, but rather a prequel to the final battle, which may end up being a rematch of Korra versus Kavira. Yeah. It's kind of like that battle they had in the mid-season finale of the final season called the first series. Okay. Where you thought they were going after the Fire Lord. Because then they had that big battle. Because then it ended up with them losing the fight. Because they had to fight the Fire Lord on another day. Uh-huh. This seems like that same similar type of battle. Okay. So I think that's where it's going. That this is just round one of the fight. Unless another villain comes in, which still might be a possibility, but they're running out of time. Unless the final episode is an extended episode. Or an extended finale like they did with the original series. But we'll see. Yeah. Because the online status. Right, exactly. Because on the flip side of things, I like that Korra wanted to solve the conflict between Sue and Kamara through negotiation instead of fighting. Because it showed how she has matured throughout the course of this series by finally understanding the role of the Avatar is about promoting peace. Very much so like how Egg did in the final season of that show. And I also thought it was smart of the writers to make Korra relate to the conflicts Kavira was facing because it's going to make their final showdown that much more powerful. Nico, how did you feel about seeing Korra reach her full maturity as the Avatar? Because is this ultimately going to lead her into exchanging blows with Kavira? This maturity has been Korra's hero's journey of the entire series. She has been essentially a fully trained Avatar 
Braveheart since the first season when she mastered airbending, but she has not truly been the Avatar until she overcame her demons in the last episode and learned that she cannot always fight her way out of her battles. She needs to rely on negotiations first and force or military fighting as a last resort if she hopes to ensure peace as the Avatar. That, as I said, is her hero's journey, and as we approach the end of this series, she too approaches the end of her hero's journey, and promoting peace has been one of her major important lessons. So I think her first and initial thing will always now be to try to promote peace, and that yeah. is while how she has changed after her, her horrible ordeal in Season 3. But I do think it will ultimately lead to exchanging blows with Kavira in the end. It's yeah, just the way it has to go. God, it's, a, it's a very powerful way to do it for the show, for Korra to reach this point. Yep. And I think that's been good so far, even though the topic kind of fell short a little bit. But uh, yeah, good stuff and very well said on that point there, Nico. Also, in other characters, I guess, maturing or changing, Varric beginning to grow unconscious. Again, is possibly developing an attraction towards Julie, even though it was kind of played off as a joke in the episode. Nico, uh, do the thing and tell us what you think about this one. Are you glad, and also, were you glad to see Bullet wise up and realize what Kuvera is doing is wrong? Varric and Julie have been some of our favorites since we first met them, and the episode yeah. with the money pooping costume just cemented it for us back in season one or two, whatever that was. That was. Gag. Yeah, the fact that they would eventually fall in love was never really a question for me because that is a classic trope of having a character that yeah. treats his assistant terribly and eventually falls for the assistant because he realizes that she's the only one who really knows him or really cares about him. That is classic. We saw it with Pepper and Tony Stark and Iron Man is another example. We know it is coming. Julie knows it is coming, but Varric still needs to live without her to realize how she completes his life. So when she pretended to sell him out and join Kavira in this episode to stay close to him, we knew he'd miss her and she'll end up saving him in an upcoming episode where he'll realize he's in love with her. All classic stuff, but still, so Don't great. Do the on this, so great on this series, yeah. As for Bolin, I was glad that he realized that he, what a dope he's been, and never really questioning what was going on. That is classic Bolin. He trusts people are doing the right thing because he is such a great guy and always strives to do the right yeah. thing himself. That he thinks and assumes everyone else does that as well. That is why he is so easily manipulated by Kavira, who he thought was a good guy. I'm glad he fought back, tried to save Varric, and will now have to somehow escape or lead a revolt at the re-education camp is going to make for some great stories going forward and it makes me feel a lot better about where Bolin is going. Yeah, I think that's a great prediction about going forward and I like how you define Bolin as this guy who, you know, always believes everyone's doing the right thing because he is such a good guy. Very well said there, Nico. I think that's great speculation as we move forward on all of this. I can't wait to see what you're talking about and your ideas go down, if they do, but they should. I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, I think it'd be fun to see it go that way. Also, I have to give the writer of this episode a lot of credit for the maturity he put into Gustavi's plotline with trying to forgive her father, even though it was quite sad and its side story nature made me unsure of where it was going, but I think it will have a major importance. I just don't know what it is right now. I mean, everything in the show really seems to pay off, and I think this one is well as well. Uh, Nico, how do you think this plotline is going to be important though? I think it will be important, maybe. I, I'm not 100%. I thought maybe that she would need her father's help in the coming war, and he will be able to prove himself by helping her in her time of need to take down Kavira and help the Avatar fixing his re relationship with Asami in the process. I'm not sure how this will all work, but that is where I could see it going, that he 
helps her invent or create something that helps turn the tide in the war. And by doing yeah. so, he repairs their relationship and maybe even earns himself a part so that they can fully repair their relationship after he's out of jail. I just don't know for sure where it's going to go or if that's even possible. That would be nice to see for her, for Sami. Yeah. Because she really does seem really lonely right now. Yeah, agreed. Especially since they have her isolated away from the other characters. I don't but think, I think that's going to change. Yeah, exactly. I think that's going to only be for the next couple episodes. And I think eventually the Team Avatar will reunite. Yeah, because Mako wasn't in this episode either. So. Not at all, exactly. So that, that makes sense. And finally, since there are so many parallels between Kuvera and Hitler with her relocation camps, Gitrits and the spirits to create super weapons, could not be willing to give up her power. I'm thinking that she's going to end up being the main villain this season. There's not a bigger entity out there. Again, it's entirely possible that by messing with the tree roots from the spirit world, it's going to cause Kuvera to unleash a bigger threat that could cause the reuniting of the original Team Avatar that we want to see, or at least to give the writers an opportunity to make up for the shortcomings of Toss appearance during the previous two episodes. Since she is connected to the True Brutes, and her daughter is being threatened by Kavera. Because you think Kavera is going to end up as the big bad for this season? Or is messing with the True Brutes from the spirit world going to make her unleash a greater evil? Dan, that's a real tough question, because I could easily see it going either way. I could see her being a Hitler-like dictator that is the big bad for the season, but it could so easily be that her forcing Varric to experiment on the spirit roots causes or unleashes some spirit world big bad that needs everyone to band together and set aside their differences to defeat the monster it unleashes. I just don't know which way makes the most sense, or really which one I would prefer, because I honestly like both of those options, and they could both be very well done. I think the second one promotes the show's message and the Avatar's message of peace Yeah, a lot better. Agreed. They both would work, and I think both would be very entertaining, but it's, I see the second one being more likely, Okay, if that's the way they go, because it just it seems to fit where Korra's going right now and everything. Yeah. But again, either way, and the show has, in the past, even though it's a kid show, surprise, it's gone different directions than we've expected. Yeah, I mean, the whole world could team up against Kavira and her army, but I think having it be a big bad spirit monster, yeah. and all the living creatures, spirit and all humans combine and fight against this spirit monster and ultimately defeat it in the end, I think that, like you said, is the best way it could go. I agree. I think that that's the, the way to do it. And again, it's different than the original series. Yep. So I would like that because Kavira kind of has this Fire Lord image right now. Uh-huh. And I think the conflict between Kuri Korra, I think, should end differently than the way things did between Ag and the Fire Lord. Agreed. Just to mix it up, I think, satisfy the audience much more. So with that, we'll move into our sitcom section where Billy Bob Thornton appeared on the Big Bang Theory to play a character that wasn't, like, scary for Halloween, but he was kind of creepy in a soccer-like fashion. So let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode, The Misinterpretation Agitation. All started with a Big Bang Penny's flirtatious sales pitch leaves a doctor client smitten and the guys must pitch in to help her deal with him, while Bernadette and Amy debate whether female scientists ought to play the sexuality card. This episode of The Big Bang Theory was a way to address the conflict of another man trying to hit on Penny without getting bogged down with the relationship drama we've complained about the past couple weeks. You bring in a solid actor like Billy Brown Thornton, because a guest star, and then fit him into the show's geek culture by making him a urologist who formed a collection of pop culture memorabilia by performing various medical procedures on celebrities. The episode got a little off this track a bit by Penny and Leonard getting in an argument over her not wearing her wedding ring while she's on sales calls. But ultimately, Billy Bob's character and his room of memorabilia made me satisfied with this episode. Setting up my favorite comedic moments of Sheldon getting excited that the urologist performed a procedure got Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Sheldon telling Leonard that he liked the video game Donkey Kong because it was about an oddly shaped man pursuing a beautiful blonde woman got Sheldon becoming excited when the doctor locked the guys in his memorabilia room so he could 
get to know Putty better. Nico, what were your favorite comedic moments from this episode? And did you enjoy Billy Bob Thornton's guest appearance? Dan, I'll answer both of those in one thing. My favorite comedic moment from this week's episode was everything Billy Bob Thornton. So yes, I absolutely loved his brilliant appearance this week as the older geek doctor guy that had been collecting memorabilia for years and had amassed an unreal collection that rivaled any I've ever seen. His Mississippi routine was pretty great too, and his falling for any girl who held his arm or brushed up against him for more than a Mississippi had me smiling every time they mentioned it. I also loved how he locked the guys in the in the basement room, but they yeah, didn't even really tough. notice because they were having so much fun. I also liked how they made an analogy of Leonard and Penny's relationship to the Donkey Kong game because it was a story of a pretty blonde girl tirelessly pursued by a small, oddly shaped man. Once again, this was one of the better episodes of the season because while it did focus a little on the relationship crap, it mostly dealt with the geek culture and the similarities between the guys and the Billy Bob Thornton character, and that's what made it work this week for me. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton did a great job of giving the show a much needed shot of the arm, and really, the show always seems to do a good job with guest characters. Again, it really doesn't waste them. Exactly. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that sometimes has a tendency to waste its guest characters, but I thought they did a better job with concerted one this week. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the episode that had a Halloween theme. The episode entitled Gossip Land. <laughs> Phil takes over Halloween from a reluctant Claire and turns the Delphi house into awesome land. Meanwhile, Glory, Gloria chooses Princess Fiona and Shrek costumes for her and Jay, but he would rather go as Prince Charming with a full head of hair. Elsewhere, Cameron can't keep up with the day's activities, and Mitchell delivers the closing arguments in a big case, but the stenographer is dressed as a spider. My favorite comedic moment for this week's Spider family would have to be Cam's inability to find Waldo in the popular children's books. Because how that came back to bite him in the butt when he lost Lily, who was dressed as Waldo, got her school Halloween party. I love the Where's Waldo book when I was a kid to the point that my fourth birthday party kind of wears Waldo theme. So I thought this was a great parody, especially since it came with Cam dressed as Wizard Whitebeard. By the way, the stenographer dressed as a spider who ruined Mitchell's success in the courtroom was a close second Come my favorite comedic moments. But the Waldo gag trumped it. Nico, what were your favorite comedic moments for this week's Modern Family? Did you think Steve Zahn's guest spot because the neighbor was a little more substantial? Because I know you were disappointed last week. Dan, I too loved Cam's inability to find Waldo and how he had to use his camera on his phone to find Lily or have Mitchell find Lily in real life when she was mixed in with all her classmates at school. Steve Zahn's appearance this week was much better and I think going forward we are going to get some great stuff out of this Phil and his character interactions. It wasn't there this week completely but I got enough to know it was coming in the future and going to probably be really good. I also like Jay's wig and how everyone thought he was Ben Franklin without it because they all imagined Prince Charming with hair. I know you're paying Jay. I know you're paying. (laughs) Great stuff. Great stuff for the fun episode. Yep. Liked it. So with that, I think it's time to move on into the closing. Kaniko, you want to tell everybody what treats and not tricks we're going to have for them next week? Yeah, next week's episode, we'll have a News with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week, and we will continue to cover the new series of Doctor Who with an in-depth discussion on the Doctor Who Season 8 finale episode entitled Death in Heaven, and we will have our reviews of Sleepy Hollow, Legend of Korra, and Star Wars Rebels, and our sitcom section including an episode of Big Bang Theory and New Girl, but we will not have Castle, Person of Interest, Supernatural, or Modern Family next week because they are all on a one-week hiatus. So join us next week for that. Also remember that our entire Back catalog is available. If you are just getting caught up on any of the shows that we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on the episode. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available at our website at acrosstheairways.com. Now roll that closing. <laughs> 
Yeah, and also, you could check out our spinoff podcast. Kadika, you want to help me in describing the first one? Sure. The Hello Carriers podcast, which is Andy's podcast on our network, dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We also have It's Tangent Time, which yeah. is Michael and Wu, and they talk about all kinds of things, geek-related, nerd-related, all the great stuff that we talk about in super in-depth, way more than right. you could do in a single episode of one of our other podcasts. So they dive deep in those episodes and talk about it and sometimes they just go off on major tangents that's why it's called tangent time exactly we also have the back catalog of longbow hunters the arrow podcast which has officially wrapped up but all of our back catalog is available so if you are going back and watching the first two seasons of arrow again you can go back and listen to woo and michael's discussions on any of those episodes and all the new arrow episodes will be along with gotham the flash and Constantine in the new revamped DC Nation podcast, which will be Dan and I talking all things DC. It's going to be awesome. And that will still be available on the regular KTA feed, as well as its own feed on iTunes, just so you're not confused. Yep. And you can also contact our podcast through email, gotacrosstheairways at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, gotacrossairwaves. There's no on there. It's just crossairwaves or Google+. Plus. Kadiko, how else can you cut? You can leave a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Give us thoughts, feedback, or a review of any of the shows we aren't currently reviewing, or tell us what you want us to review. You can do all of that by calling 773-809-3363 and leaving a voicemail. And how can you listen to our show if you don't know so already? You can listen to our show through Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and the Mix Radio Network, thanks to our good friend Jack Stifle. And you can also listen to our episodes by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. All right, so once again, for other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Kenny Babak, Wu Kim, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Restek. Can until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. Can happy belated Halloween, everybody, and if you find yourself trapped inside a thriller, get out of there as quick as you can. See you guys. Have a great week. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.